This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. So this is a fight study episode. So what is fight study? It's where we analyze professional fights for techniques, tactics, and strategies, and try to glean useful information about the art of combat. Today, we'll be looking at UFC 239, Jones vs. Santos. This was a mega stacked card, so to get through all the fights we wanted to cover, we split up the duties, where I'll be presenting half the fights we wanted to cover while Paul presents the other half. So unlike other MMA podcasts that like to do bad comedy before they begin the analysis, we just like to jump right into it. Though, if you're one of our listeners and you want us to do bad comedy rapport building before the analysis, let us know, and we most certainly can make that happen. So let's start with the main event. John Jones defending his light heavyweight title against Diago Santos. Santos being the most powerful and probably the best kicker Jones has faced. Better than, I'd say, Mauricio Shogun Hua. In Jones, you have a very long range fighter. I've talked about range fighting before where it's about fighting different styles in different ranges. And I said that's the 2.0 model. But now we're seeing people come in who are fighting with all styles in every range. But even with that said... Jones is the best in MMA at fighting at different ranges. He is the best version of the old model. And we haven't had a passing of the torch yet. So this style might work for him until he retires. And why he's so good at this fighting style, range fighting, isn't just because of his skill. It's also because of his physical attributes. John Jones has the longest reach in all of MMA, in all weight classes. And if Jones were to move to boxing, he'd probably have the longest reach there. So Jones had a near 9-inch reach advantage over Thiago Santos and 2 inches in height. So fighting in ranges works even better if you're that much longer because you have that many more ranges. So what does Santos have going for him? The first is the advantage every challenger will now have. The advantage of being able to study not only all of John Jones' body of work, but also having had the opportunity to study it for years. But the second advantage is what's most important. Santos had confidence. Unfortunately, he was much smaller and also injured. Either he got injured early on, or he was already injured. My guess is, he was injured, then made it way worse after the first round. Now, let me first present things other fighters have done well against John Jones. Lyoto Machida did really well using parries. He parried and blitzed, and found success with that against Jones. Mauricio Shogun Hua, who I mentioned earlier, found success in their short fight with leg kicks. Alexander Gustafsson found success with stance switching and varying the distance against the low-line kicks. And also several fighters have shown 
if you allow John Jones to lead, he's not nearly the finisher he is when you're the one pressing him. Also, as far as general striking theory goes, just kick the person while they're kicking. This is common in kickboxing. Emelianenko Fedor did it to Krokop. Jorge Mazdal also does this well. And so does Amanda Nunez. And also when somebody is throwing straight line kicks at you, you can catch the kick or sweep the kick across your body, then counter. This is also from kickboxing and something Masvidal does well and something Tony Ferguson started doing against Donald Cerrone. And one more important note, the majority of John Jones finishes came off of fighters that were much older than him. Since John Jones won the title, the only fighter he's finished that was close to him in age was Alexander Gustafsson, and that was only in the rematch. Other than that, you had Chael Sonnen, Vitor Belfort, Leoto Machida, and Quinton Jackson, who were all 9 to 10 years older. So youth also plays a factor in fighting John Jones. John Jones took Anthony Smith to a decision, but in their fight, Anthony Smith did very little. But what did he have going for him? Youth. All of these are considerations. And what does youth mean? Youth means you still have durability. You still have speed. You still have athleticism. You still have stamina. So it's not just about being young. It's about all the things being young represents. And when John Jones has a clear athletic advantage, that's usually when he finishes you. So all of these are considerations. So how did the actual fight play out? Well, both fighters came out southpaw in this fight, but both fighters consistently switched stances. Both fighters seem to want to fight from the open stance. Neither fighter likes to jab, but instead used the kick in lieu of the jab. All of that stylistically plays well into Diago Santos's game. And also, since John Jones is a range fighter, if you're at distance, Jones will only kick. He will only punch when you get closer into range. So imagine John Jones and his opponent standing in front of each other at distance. And imagine you're looking at this as if this was a side-scrolling video game. So the distance between the two fighters draw imaginary lines. Now each one of those sections that you've drawn out is a range. And John Jones will do different techniques based on where you are in those imaginary ranges. And he very rarely strays from the attacks he will use in those ranges. So for example, if you're at the furthest range, he will start doing his low line kicks or his push kicks or his wheel kicks. So all of that stylistically plays well into Diago Santos's game. Now Santos is a powerful kicker and he punches hard, but he's not a great boxer. So if Santos stays at range, it'll become a kicking battle. Not even kickboxing, just kicking. Again, this plays well for Santos. And Santos came out throwing heavy calf kicks and leg kicks, really chewing up the leg of John Jones. He combined this with side-to-side movements, shuffling one way and then the other way, making Jones chase him to a side only to eat a kick. So Jones was constantly moving into a kick. The only reason this tactic didn't continue was because Santos injured his knee early on in the fight. But Santos kept kicking anyway, but not nearly the same frequency post-knee injury. Also, he kept stumbling. 
and the side-to-side movement stopped, which seemed to be a big part of his game plan. The only reason Santos didn't get eaten alive by Jones when he was stumbling was because Jones isn't a blitz type of fighter, and secondly, because Santos himself would blitz whenever Jones came after him post-stumble. And also, here's the thing about judging. If a fighter gets injured and buckles and loses his balance or stumbles and falls over, but it's not because of something his opponent did, you can't count that as part of the scoring for the opponent. He has to do something to make you stumble. He has to do something to make you drop to the floor. But if you're doing it to yourself because you missed a kick or your knee went out, you can't score that as offense for John Jones because he didn't even injure that knee. He didn't kick him to make that knee buckle. Diego Santos did it to himself. So that was a confusion a lot of people seem to have online. No, you don't score that for John Jones. Now, even with the knee problem, another factor in the success of Santos in this fight was his confidence, and he didn't fear the striking of John Jones. Will Jones hit me with a one-punch knockout counter? Probably not. However, Jones' best power strikes have been intercepting elbows or spinning elbows. And in this fight, he stumbled Diago Santos with an intercepting elbow. But other than that, Santos was never really hurt. And even in that stumble, Santos seemed to be more off-balanced, but he didn't seem rocked at all. He was right back into his fight. The real problem was his knee. His knee wasn't stable, which made the stumble even worse. But Santos now being with American Top Team, he seemed to have Jones well-scouted. When Jones went for his low-line kicks, whether they were an oblique kick or a side kick, Santos answered back with punches or kicks, or he swept the kick then followed up with punches. You had two American Top Team fighters fighting Jackson Wink fighters who like to use the low-line kick and the oblique kick. And look at how well the American Top Team fighters did. Look at what Amanda Nunes did when Holly Holm tried to kick her in the knee. She countered with her own kick and knocked her out. So UFC 239 was also Jackson Wink system versus American Top Team system. And American Top Team really figured a lot of things out. And continually throughout the fight, Santos kept backing up. Similar to the Tyron Woodley strategy, forcing Jones to collapse his own reach advantage. If Jones is the one backing up, his reach advantage just becomes greater. But when Jones is coming forward, he closes his own distance. But after the knee injury, it was a lot of linear attacks for Santos. Santos would go straight back, then come straight forward. But he still scored with punches. Throughout the fight, Diego Santos went for more power shots. And in my opinion, landed more of the power shots. But he also missed more power shots. The thing about John Jones is even if you find success from range, he'll win on volume. However, he's not a heavy volume striker. He ekes out the volume, much like Anderson Silva. He even began adopting Anderson Silva's Wing Chun hand movements. But unlike Anderson Silva, Jones does not have the counter-striking pedigree against the blitz attack. Jones mostly backs straight up. And other than the intercepting elbow, Santos mostly did not get countered in his blitz attacks. And Santos is not the most technical boxer, let alone puncher. So I explained what other fighters have figured out, but in this fight, 
Future John Jones opponents will have something new to study. How John Jones handled blitzing punches. Santos also employed the parry to blitz, similar to what Leoto Machida did. John Jones likes to use his reach and extend his hand out as a defense. This is part of why he gouges so many eyeballs. So why didn't Diego Santos get his eyes gouged like everybody else? Because Santos parried the hand, which dropped the defense of Jones, which allowed Santos to come in with punches from such a reach disadvantage. Diego Santos was putting all the lessons together with new lessons. And it makes me wonder what would have happened without the knee injury. But I can't say for sure Santos would have done that much better because John Jones and his team would have adapted also. Now, I mentioned in previous episodes that when you fight from the open stance, the body kick and the head kick are much more open. So after several rounds of scoring with low kicks and body kicks, Diego Santos began to score with head kicks. But if you watch how the head kicks land or even how the body kicks land, he didn't have the same ability to pivot. So none of them hit with the usual power that Diago Santos usually delivers. If you watch how they land, instead of coming in sideways, they kind of came up more vertical. And that all has to do with his inability to pivot. But even with that, the speed of Diago Santos's kicks were a problem for John Jones. But because he couldn't kick as much, Santos was forced to rely more and more on his hands. And defensively, with his mobility compromised, his main defense was to punch back whenever John Jones came after him. Because Diago Santos isn't known as a great defensive fighter. So how do I get this guy off of me? How do I get them to stop punching me? I'm going to punch them back. And because Jones is such a strategic and patient fighter, he will back off. He won't go into a firefight. Another interesting strategy for Santos was how he fought from his strengths. He's a much better kicker than puncher. So he would use the kicks to set up punches rather than the other way around, where you use your punches to set up your kicks. What Santos did was he would kick you and then immediately follow up with punches. He would actually punch before his foot made contact with the ground after the kick, which gave him extra reach, similar to how a Superman punch gives you extra reach. Also, doing this allowed Santos to land while Jones was defending something else. Another thing Santos did to overcome the reach disadvantage was to kick. Then instead of chambering it back, he used the kick to step forward, then land with punches. So let's say I'm standing southpaw with my right foot forward. Then I throw the left kick and instead of pulling it back, repositioning myself into southpaw stance, I would kick then let that foot land in front of me, landing in orthodox stance, and then punching from there. So essentially, he was using kicks also to cover ground. Diago Santos also did a good job with body kicks to punches. Land a body kick, get a reaction from John Jones, which is usually to try and grab the kick. And from there, with John Jones's hands down, Santos would punch John Jones. There was also an interesting habit about John Jones that this fight really revealed, which was basically to turn away and run. And that does become an opportunity for a really good kicker who might be also tall to land a head kick. That's what Holly Holm did to Ronda Rousey. 
Now, John Jones did attack the injured knee, but the defensive punching of Thiago Santos prevented it from ever getting to a point where Santos would be so hurt that he would be finished. There was never a point where Thiago Santos looked like he was about to get finished. There were points, however, that you thought the knee would just completely blow out and they would have to just stop the fight because of that, because of freak injury. But in this fight, a scary aspect of John Jones was also revealed. And it's something we've seen before, but not often. That John Jones is not only freakishly long and athletic and also smart and patient, but he also has an iron head. And when I say head, I don't mean chin. I mean head, meaning you hit him anywhere in the head, including the chin, and he eats it like it's nothing. He reminds me a bit of prime Chuck Liddell. He gets hit and it doesn't phase him at all. Fortunately for Jones, he doesn't want to keep testing his chin and he does try to evade. So with all that said, I gave you a lot of good things about Diago Santos. So why didn't he win? Well, it was close and Jones only won by split decision. But even though Santos strategically found holes in the game of John Jones, he didn't do enough to exploit it, probably because of his injury. But it wasn't because Jones adjusted to the things that Diego Santos was doing and started to land counters. It wasn't really like that. And also, Jones has the reach advantage. This also includes his legs. That always gives him, no pun intended, a leg up. So even though Santos did well with his kicks, Jones ultimately landed more kicks. Were Jones's kicks harder than Thiago Santos's? No. Was John Jones's volume at a Max Holloway, Frankie Edgar, Donald Cerrone, Tony Ferguson, Michael Bisbing, or the Diaz brothers level? No. But like the wise Anderson Silva, he doesn't have to land that many. He just needs to land more than his opponent. And John Jones landed leg kicks, side kicks, push kicks, head kicks, some punches, an elbow, and it all adds up. Never landing the big shot or putting together combos, but just consistently landing every 10 to 20 seconds. Jones's striking is much more like a sniper. And Jones landed enough strikes throughout enough rounds. Also, Jones pressed the fight. He's not going to land over 50 strikes in a round. He'll beat you with 20 strikes, maybe 10 strikes, maybe eight. But he'll make sure if he lands eight, you only landed six. Jones isn't in a rush. He just wants to win. And this makes sense based on how he was raised and the family he came from. He has professional football players as brothers. And that type of mindset of just being patient and just winning, figuring out a way to win and just win. That is a strategy you see more in just regular sports. You could win the Super Bowl by being defensive, but all that matters is you got a Super Bowl ring. And John Jones is much more of a strategist of that mindset, of a winning Super Bowl team mindset, rather than a just bleed kamikaze fighter mindset who came up never liking any other sport other than MMA. And so that is the singular mindset that person adopts. John Jones isn't like that. He came up wrestling and playing football and probably a whole bunch of other sports. So his idea of winning and losing is framed from something else. So he's all results oriented. But think about it the other way. 
If a football player adopted the blood and guts MMA fighter mindset and went out on the football field and tried to destroy their body every play, the NFL career is short enough, but this person would probably last two games. So that type of mindset probably isn't even good for MMA. And fortunately for John Jones, having come from a different background and coming from a sports family, he never adopted it. And that's a part of John Jones's greatness that isn't considered. He is great because he thinks about MMA like people think about football. And if you think about MMA in this, I'm a warrior kind of watching too many movies mindset, I don't know how great you'll ever be. You'll be great to watch. But will you have as many victories as John Jones? Probably not. Now, after the fight, John Jones says something about how he needs to plug up his weaknesses. One of them being how many times he got kicked in the leg. But the reason that hole exists is because of how he stands. John Jones stands very sideways so he can deliver those low-line kicks. But if he wants to start defending against leg kicks, he might have to change his stance. But if he changes his stance, what about his low-line kicks? So for example, the Diaz brothers always get their legs chewed up in a fight, but they never change their stance because then they will lose their jab. So instead of changing their stance so that they're in a better position to check kicks, they try to counter kicks with punches. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And they also ended up just relying on toughness. But what else did they have? Their bread and butter is that jab, and they can't deliver that jab without that stance. So they were kind of forced to be tough. Now, it'll be interesting how Jackson Wink will adapt John Jones. It does seem like Jackson Wink is no longer a super camp, but just a camp for John Jones. So if you happen to be John Jones, you'll be well taken care of. But as of now, since becoming a champion, it does seem like my observation about Jones taking guys closer to him in age to a decision, still stands. And as Jones ages himself, he'll also naturally become less threatening. But even a diminishing John Jones is still probably better than most, if not all, of the light heavyweight division. But with all the success Diago Santos discovered as far as long-term areas that could have been exploited, now you start to wonder. But if you're a future opponent of John Jones, not only should you watch this fight, but I'd also recommend watching Holly Holm versus Amanda Nunez and also Holly Holm versus Valentina Shevchenko. There are some strategic counters that Holly Holm has had to run into that John Jones still hasn't. And this is where I have to disagree with the UFC propaganda machine that John Jones is the pound for pound greatest of all time because he beat the best guys because the best guys are in the light heavyweight division. And that's just not true. The light heavyweight division along with the heavyweight division are two of the weakest divisions in all of MMA. And that's why it makes more sense to watch some of Holly Holmes's fight because even with all the criticisms that the women's MMA divisions get, she still run into more strategic complications than John Jones has. And that might be a key in defeating John Jones in the future. So next we have Amanda Nunez versus Holly Holm for the women's bantamweight title. Now, this is a weight division that has pretty much been cleared out by Amanda Nunez. 
as she's defeated at this point all former champions in that weight class. Now, this fight ended when Amanda Nunez TKO'd Holly Holm in round one at the four minute and 10 second mark. Now, looking at the division as a whole, I don't know who's really next in line, but it seems that Amanda Nunez has her eye on the winner of the next cyborg fight. Now, going back to this fight, Holly Holm came out early in the southpaw stance and is pretty tentative. Now, being that she wants to stay mobile and attack the legs of Amanda Nunez, she goes for oblique kicks early to keep Nunez away, and she throws in some low-line kicks as well. Home will constantly move when Nunez moves forward, which is great, because the one thing you don't want to do is stay static with a vicious striker. Holmes does a good job of jamming the jab when Nunez comes forward, but she's inconsistent with this approach. Since Holm never established a takedown threat from the clinch early on, or in her career for that matter, Nunez will round kick with no hesitation. And because Holm doesn't want to stay in one place for too long, she doesn't check them as frequently as she should. Now, Holm is strong in the clinch, and whenever they do clinch up, she does strike off of it, which is smart. Holm also tries to control the inside lane of the striking exchanges instead of having the lead foot out. This could be to make sure that Nunez can't throw with hooks as frequently and so that Holm can throw out the jab to jam Nunez from the inside. Now, Nunez throws with no hesitation since she doesn't fear the power of Holm. In this fight, Holm seems to be a bit more willing to trade strikes with Nunez as opposed to her approach with Ronda Rousey where she would constantly move laterally and never settled in one space for too long. Now, this is something that Nunez realized late in round one, and she saw an opportunity to take advantage of a move that she admitted to practicing towards the last week of her camp. Now, Nunez sets up a fake hook, which draws out a reaction from home. Now, this is what Nunez wants, and now that she has a program, she has home moving in a certain direction that she needs to set up her next strike. By fainting it straight and kicking high on the same side, she catches home clean. This is the kind of move that made Krokop so feared. By having a left straight and a left high kick from the same side, the opponents had to pick 50-50 on what they were going to defend. And this is the same thing that's allowing Dominic Reyes to trouble so many light heavyweights. Holly Holm herself is great at the setup, which is what makes Amanda Nunez's victory so special. It's odd because Holm has the blueprint for beating a fighter like Amanda Nunez, but perhaps it's age and wear and tear. Holm is 37 and has won two of her last six fights. Although her MMA career isn't as long, her fighting career is quite extensive if you add the boxing and kickboxing matches. Now, one of the things that I noticed is when home moves laterally and she picks you apart with jabs and those lancing straight lefts, it's when she does her best work. Now, if she can mix in clinches, knees to the midsection, it's even better. But in this fight, she seemed to have parts of the game plan down. But otherwise, she would be standing and willing to exchange with Amanda Nunez, which is never a good thing. Now, the more chance you give Amanda Nunez to think things through 
and set up for the next strike, it's not going to work in your favor, especially if you've been working off of reactions and now you have more and more things to worry about. It's going to cause problems. And it was evident when Nunez said she spotted Holly Holm being a little bit more reactive and willing to trade strikes as opposed to moving laterally and Nunez having to chase her down more frequently. I don't know where this leaves home moving forward, but she could very well call it a career because I don't really see a path for her in either featherweight or bantamweight for that matter. And for Amanda Nunez, she might just retire after fighting the winner of Cyborg and Spencer because quite frankly, what else is there for her to do? Why not go out on top as a multiple-time defending champion in two separate weight classes? That's something no one in the men's has been able to do. And if Nunez is the first one to do it, why not? So next up, we have Jorge Masvidal versus Ben Askren. The dangerous kickboxer who is good everywhere and still super fast, explosive, and athletic versus an aggressive, sticky wrestler who isn't athletic or fast or explosive, who also isn't good everywhere, but just in that one phase, wrestling. But as far as age and size, they were identical. But with the style clash I just mentioned and how they both looked in their previous outings, I was shocked to see Ben Askren as the betting favorite. I think because of the Joe Rogan hype train of Ben Askren, people saw Askren's wrestling Similarly to how people used to see Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, like magic. You'll lose by some unimaginable ground magic. But we live in the era of YouTube and Instagram. There is no more magic. However, speed still exists and things can happen so quickly, you might not see what just happened. I guess that's still a form of magic, but not one based on trickery. But it's hard not to notice that a lot of these inaccurate ideas about MMA come from Joe Rogan. (laughs) And you could argue a lot of bad ideas come from Joe Rogan, but this is the same guy who got everybody to buy in into the Ronda Rousey hype train. I mentioned earlier about how John Jones is being portrayed as the greatest of all time. And a lot of that came from Joe Rogan constantly saying that John Jones in the light heavyweight division fought better competition than anybody else, including Mighty Mouse. When every other analyst agrees that the light heavyweight division in all of MMA really is one of the weakest divisions next to the heavyweight division. And on a side note, he also likes to tell that story about how when the rules of MMA were being created, that the down elbow was banned because the people creating the rules watched karate guys breaking ice that way. And that story is completely false. And then there's the whole thing about fighting would be much safer if people fought without gloves. Well, look at bare knuckle boxing. It is not a safer sport. But there is a general pattern here, whether it's about MMA or anything else. A lack of fact checking and also this general belief, even if there's no evidence to back it up, that everything would be better and safer if we got rid of more and more regulations. He applies that to free speech. He applies that to gun control. Let everybody do everything and we will live in a utopia, not in Mad Max. 
So it was cool to dunk on Mike Goldberg for not knowing anything, but come on, come on. The other MMA 1.0 broadcaster is not only just as bad, but probably a lot worse. So before the fight, I told everyone in our Facebook group and our Discord channel that I was afraid for Ben Askren's safety. Even if Ben Askren knows some ground magic, you still need to avoid getting hit. And Askren has some of the worst striking in the UFC. It rivals CM Punk. And I don't know if his striking is better than CM Punk's. And coincidentally, they both train at the same camp. Now, Jorge Masvidal started the fight in the traditional Masvidal stance, which is with his hands clasped behind his back. Same way he walks around backstage at UFC events, the same way he walks when he talks smack, the same way he was when he sucker punched Leon Edwards. And that's how he came out in this fight, with his hands clasped behind his back. Then he side jogged slowly, and Askren came straight forward. Then the side jog turned into a full sprint, which should not be surprising. He did the same thing in the first round against Darren Till, but in that fight, it was a running dick kick. But even after landing that foul, in the way that Masvidal knocked out Darren Till, Masvidal showed how explosive he is. And against Askren, rather than a running sidekick, it was a running flying knee. And much like Aaron Pico in Bellator, Askren saw the knee and ducked for the takedown, which turned into the fastest KO in UFC history, five seconds in the first round. Now, another reason this shouldn't have been too surprising was because leading into this fight, Masvidal, his manager, and his team said that he was going to go for a flying knee. And I think part of why this landed is because of how tough Ben Askren is. He's probably ducked onto kicks, onto knees, and ate them and took his opponent down anyway. Duke Rufus and Anthony Pettis said this happens all the time in training, and he eats those strikes like it's nothing. So okay, you can get away with that. But that's not something you plan on. That's just something that happens, but you should try to avoid. Like I mentioned earlier, John Jones has an iron head, but that's not part of his plan. He still wants to avoid getting hit. So if getting hit and being tough becomes a part of your habit, it becomes a ticking time bomb. And this time it exploded in Askren's face. But Ben Askren is also pretty straightforward in his fighting. The odd angles and improvisation start only when it hits the mat. Before that, he's not funky at all. And if and when Ben Askren fights again, I'll still be scared for him. Even if I think Askren might win, I'll still be scared for him. When Askren talks, he sounds intelligent. On the ground, he seems that way also. But as far as MMA fight IQ, even when I've heard him talk about fights, assess fights, breakdown fights, it's not the same Ben Askren I hear who breaks down wrestling matches. He also doesn't seem to game plan. He probably heard, like everyone else, how Jorge Masvidal planned to do a flying knee. But was Askren going to do anything different? Or knowing how explosive Robbie Lawler is, was Ben Askren going to do anything different? I don't think he thinks of MMA in that way. I think he still thinks of it as 
I'm going to go in and just do my thing and it'll all work out. But maybe he needed to finally lose to make him respect MMA as its own animal rather than an amalgam of parts. So next we have Luke Rockhold versus Jan Blachowicz, where Jan Blachowicz knocked out Luke Rockhold in round two at the one minute and 39 mark. Now, this was Luke Rockhold's light heavyweight debut, and this is something that he's talked about for a long time. The state of the light heavyweight division as it stands is pretty bleak. To give you just a picture of what it looks like, the last two contenders for the title were Anthony Smith and Thiago Santos. Both guys built up a three to four fight win streak in the light heavyweight division, and they automatically qualified for a title shot. When you contrast that with the lightweight, welterweight, and featherweights, there are several log jams because there's so many contenders and so many guys who could be champion. So when you look at the state of light heavyweight, it's no wonder that middleweights who can no longer cut it or have a difficult time making the limit have decided to try their luck at moving up. So Luke Rockhold is one of the bigger middleweights to cut down. And given his 6'3 frame, and the fact that he's always depleted, he might feel that he has a better shot at filling out at light heavyweight and giving some of those guys problems. Now, early on, and when I say early on, I mean possibly in the first minute or so, it looked like Rockhold might have found his home. Rockhold throws kicks from Southpaw constantly, and he does a good job of keeping Blahovitz guessing. Now, this is the part where I thought, okay, Maybe Rockhold has decided that moving up no longer depletes him and he's not going to conserve so much energy and he's going to be able to start hurting people. But as soon as I thought that, Rockhold seemed to struggle with the takedown and it could be that he's facing against legitimate light heavyweights who are cutting from even further than he is. Now, it's an odd choice in strategy. Because this isn't the same Luke Rockhold who used to set up his takedowns much more smoothly and efficiently. Also of note is that Rockhold's left leg is covered with a compression sleeve. And it's important to note that he's been out for a year with a shin injury. And it looks to be something that's still giving him problems. Going back to the fight, Rockhold eventually powers Blahovitz down. And he goes for the neck but gets denied. Now, once they get back up on the feet, Blahovitz stiff arms Rockhold with his forearms and keeps him from advancing the takedown. And from here, Blahovitz actually lands clean on Rockhold on the break. Now, this is something that I thought Luke Rockhold could and should have used to his advantage by going for a takedown, getting denied, and hitting off the break. This is something he's actually done in the past and something a lot of the lighter weight guys do very well, especially Frankie Edgar. Now, with 90 seconds left in round one, Rockhold is already breathing hard and plotting, which isn't a great look. Especially when you consider the fact that Rockhold moved up to light heavyweight in order to not be as depleted, it's very telling of where he is in his career. Now, Rockhold fakes a kick and goes for a straight. And this is where he seems to have some success, and he's had it in the past. Because when you're worried about the kicks, 
it's less likely that you'll be ready to defend punches as quickly. So when Rockhold did this, I thought, okay, maybe he's setting up for these kind of combination strikings in the future. I was wrong because as soon as he did that, Blahovitz kicks to Rockhold's open side and he hits him clean. This has always been the problem with southpaw strikers since they leave their right side open and it's more likely to hit their organs and damage them. Now, a head kick at the buzzer hurts Rockhold, but it's clear that the combination right before did most of the damage. Rockhold's propensity for leaving his chin out hasn't gotten better. It's still present. And it's clear that Rockhold lost that round towards the end. And it's bizarre considering that Rockhold has all the tools to give someone of Blahovic's level fits. In his fights against Weidman, Bisping, and Machida, Rockhold strategically picks different types of kicks to give you multiple looks and setups from Southpaw to keep you guessing. And when he has you hurt and cautious, he will hunt for the takedown. If he doesn't seem to have it, he will hook off the break, or if he thinks you'll follow him too aggressively, he'll also throw that out as a deterrent. None of that execution was here. In fact, Blahovitz check hook whenever Rockhold got lazy on the return. Now, in the second round, short punches in the clinch aren't defended as much by Rockhold. And even though they don't hurt at the moment, they add up. This would have been a great opportunity for Rockhold to throw some elbows to give Blahovitz something other than kicks to worry about offensively, but instead he eats the strikes. Now, Rockhold's habit of getting lazy off the clinch gets him caught, since he wasn't as diligent of bringing his hand up after losing the overhook. This is a poor habit that's constantly plagued his career, and if you want examples, it's something that Bisping took advantage of in the rematch to knock him out. It was David Branch's best strike against him in their fight. And it's also how Yoel Romero was able to knock out Rockhold while the latter was retreating. Now, in this fight, Rockhold eats a right straight first before eating the left hook to his exposed side. This resulted in a broken jaw, the second in Rockhold's career. Despite all his accomplishments at middleweight, Rockhold is now 1-3 in his last four fights with all three losses being by brutal knockout. Now, Blahovitz is a decent light heavyweight, and he's added a lot of different strikes to his arsenal. I don't know if he's the guy to challenge for the title, especially considering that he has losses to both Gustafson and Thiago Santos, both guys who have fought John Jones and lost. So as far as where this puts Blahovitz in the title hunt, because this is the light heavyweight division we're talking about, I'd say maybe after two more wins, he's probably next in line for the title. So let me clarify one more thing by you-know-who. The round doesn't end at the horn. The horn is a notification to the referee. The round ends when the referee breaks up the action. This is true for MMA, boxing, and kickboxing. Otherwise, they would have never let a deaf fighter like Matt Hamill ever fight in the UFC. And also, if this were the case, hearing tests would be a part of the physical before a fight. So whether you can hear the buzzer or the horn or the bell or not does not matter. So next we have Michael Chiesa versus Diego Sanchez. Sanchez is the smaller, aggressive striker grappler, and Chiesa is the younger, bigger striker grappler. Now, Sanchez is someone who I really wished would just retire from MMA. 
especially after his recent split from Jackson Wink and getting with some cult leader slash transformation coach as his new and only trainer slash training partner. And also since he's been giving these bizarre interviews where he doesn't even talk the same way as he used to, where it sounds like he's slurring his speech. And it seems more and more likely that he has CTE. Now, the fight was essentially Kiesa and Sanchez engaging, Kiesa getting the better of it. But if Sanchez did get Kiesa down, Kiesa would just reverse it and end up on top and beat up Sanchez from the top or from his back. Kiesa looks good at 170, but it was also Sanchez just looking really old and battered. Sanchez in this fight lacked his usual intensity and speed, strength, and even cardio. He's still squirmy and still has his BJJ defense. That's the beauty of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It'll be the last thing you lose. But other than that, Diego Sanchez looked pretty flat, which is very unusual. And on top of all the things I mentioned, Sanchez also looked like someone who had a bad back, who has a bad neck, who has bad knees. Kiesa, I believe, could have finished Sanchez with strikes, but because he wanted to be the first guy to submit Diego Sanchez, he ended up winning a dominant, unanimous decision. But that's how much in control Kiesa must have felt like he was in, that he could determine the outcome of how it ended rather than just taking what he could get. You could only do that once you feel your opponent and know you're that much more superior, like you're playing with them, like when a black belt is rolling with a blue belt and calls out how he or she is going to finish the blue belt. And after watching this fight and knowing there's no active fighter in the UFC who's taking more headshots than Diego Sanchez, I hope he just retires. But then again, I can't imagine anyone getting Diego Sanchez to retire. Now, BJ Penn competes with Diego Sanchez for most head strikes absorbed in the UFC, but Penn mostly fought in the UFC, whereas Diego fought more than 10 times outside of the UFC. And also, he had the fights on The Ultimate Fighter, and he had those amateur fights. And also, he probably fought a lot of unsanctioned MMA fights from reservations or small venues that don't appear on his record. That happened a lot during his era. So who knows how many strikes to the head he's really taken. And can you imagine Diego Sanchez not having gym wars? I can't. It all makes me believe there's no active fighter on the roster who's been hit more than Diego Sanchez. So I wish he would just stop. And I also hope he didn't give his whole fight purse away to his new transformative spiritual movement coach. Finally, we have Gilbert Melendez versus Arnold Allen in the featherweight division. And Arnold Allen beats Melendez by unanimous decision. Now, going into this fight, it's evident that the featherweight division is absolutely stacked. And to give you some context, Arnold Allen was 5-0 and going into this fight. And Melendez was coming off from a near two-year layoff. So even though Gilbert Melendez has all the accolades and the experience, Arnold Allen has the youth and momentum on his side. Now, Allen comes out southpaw and he mirrors Melendez. 
Melendez will plot forward and feints to hooks. Allen dips constantly to get out and will go to the body to slow down Melendez. It's clear that the uppercuts hurt Melendez and it forced the Melendez to cover up, leaving his head open for hooks and jabs. By the end of the first round, Melendez is the one being stalked. This is odd because in the clinch, Melendez does hurt Allen, and he would be better utilizing the same setup that Daniel Cormier does, where he has his hands slightly out where he can jam any incoming strikes, and that way you can set up your own. This is something that George Foreman also utilized pretty effectively. But instead, Melendez covered up and he takes it on the forearms like a Justin Gaethje, but none of the speed and tenacity where Gaethje will return with hooks and low kicks. Now, in the second round, Allen does a good job of fainting, and now he's the one who smothers the lead hand of Melendez and follows up with kicks. This gives him a chance to see the attacks from Melendez before it happens. Now, the lead leg is also way too narrow for Melendez, but Allen doesn't take advantage. Allen constantly attack the body and go upstairs after. This gives Melendez more headaches and something that he doesn't have the reaction time to defend against. Melendez also doesn't faint enough and gives no takedown threat. When you compare the Melendez who fought Eddie Alvarez and Anthony Pettis, he was still able to give you threats and looks off all different phases of combat. But here, instead, he seemed to be the guy moving forward and taking shots in order to give some. And Melendez should actually use the forward pressure of Allen to time a takedown, but he doesn't do it at all. In the third round, Allen at this point just bullies Melendez down and pounds him against the cage. Melendez uses that to get out, but it's odd to see him on his back at all. Allen will also mix in cap kicks, which is something Jeremy Stevens took advantage of when he fought Gilbert Melendez. The lack of combination punching doesn't do Melendez any favors, and he eats the calf kicks over and over again. Now, when Melendez presses forward with punches, Allen does cover up and move straight back, which is a missed opportunity for a takedown, or at least an attempt at an overhand, which is what Stipe Miocic did when he fought Francis Ngannou. Now, moving forward, I don't know if there is anything that Gilbert Melendez can do Considering in his UFC career, he's only really had one victory, and that was against Diego Sanchez. For Arnold Allen, he's now 6-0 in the featherweight division, and he's right up there with guys like Volkanovski, who's built up a decent win streak, and now he has a former world champion on his record. So it's clear that Arnold Allen is young, and he has time on his side, and if he's able to notch over a couple more victories in the featherweight class, it's clear that he's right in line for a title shot. Now, with that said, Paul, what do you have coming up? So right now, I'm working on the preview for Rafael Dos Anjos versus Leon Edwards and Max Holloway versus Frankie Edgar. Okay, that's all for now. So long and goodbye. Goodbye.